It's New Comics Day, Wednesday, March 15th, 2017, and you're listening to God and Comics, your source for fake news about real people and real news about fake people. On today's show, we talk about manga, the Japanese style of comic books and animation. We'll look at some of the similarities and differences with American comics, as well as some of the themes that run through many popular manga series. A warning, though. If you're starting at this end of the podcast, you're listening in the wrong direction. Today's episode, in keeping with the original (laughs) Japanese, is meant to be heard from the end to the beginning. I'm your host, Father Jonathan Michikin. I'm rector of Church of the Holy Comforter in Drexel Hill, Pennsylvania. On the line with me today is Father Kyle Tomlin. Father Kyle, where are you? I'm at Church of the Messiah in Fredericksburg, Virginia. And also on the line is Father Matt Stromberg. Father Matt, where are you? I'm at St. George's Episcopal Church in Schenectady, New York. And uh, as we're recording this, it is snowing quite a bit throughout the uh, Northeast. And so uh, I'm uh, snowed in at home. I think Father Matt is uh, snowed in at home. Um, is it, how's the snow down in Virginia, Father Kyle? We have it here, but it's only about an inch, and it's mixed with icy rain and slush. So um, okay. I'm not necessarily snowed in. I am on my day off, but I'm not snowed in. Ah, well, there we are. So you may hear our children uh, milling around in the background. Uh, but, you know, the good news is you just got a quite accurate weather report for uh, weather that has already happened. So that'll be good. <laughs> So we start, as always, with our recommendation, and uh, I have the recommendation this week. And I'm going to recommend something from the new Archieverse. I'm sure many of you are aware of, well, maybe not everybody, but many of you are probably aware of the fact that in the last couple of years, they've been kind of reinventing Archie. You know, Archie Comics, the, the characters Archie, Jughead, Betty and Veronica, and so forth, have been around since uh, the golden age of comics. They go way back. Um, and, uh, you know, you've seen them in the drugstore and uh, at the grocery store and so forth all your life, probably. And they're kind of hokey. And, uh, you know, the comics kind of have hokey jokes in them and stuff. But the last couple of years... They've been they they still put out the hokey stuff. Uh, don't worry, uh, but they've also been doing uh, a new line of of Archie books where they take these same Archie characters and they they put really top notch creators on them, and they kind of just do different versions of them in different uh, different lights and different different ways. Um, Afterlife with Archie is one example where they sort of created a horror book out of it. There's a, you know, Mark Wade was writing an Archie book for a while. Uh, you had the Jughead book, which for a while was being written by uh, Chip Zdarsky. Um, so that was really interesting. There's actually a really great Josie and the Pussycats book out now that Marguerite Bennett co-writes. But the one that I want to recommend, uh, because I think it's probably the best of the crop, is Betty and Veronica by Adam Hughes. It's written by Adam Hughes and drawn by Adam Hughes. And it is uh, a delightful book to read. It has all it's it's called Betty and Veronica and they are the two main protagonists, but it actually has all of the Archie characters in it. Um and it is bananas. It is just ridiculously funny. Um 
the storyline is pretty simple. It's uh, basically pops uh, the you know the the place where they all go to have hamburgers and so forth is about to be forced out of business by this new coffee shop uh, company that's coming in. And so uh, Betty launches a campaign and tries to get everybody involved to try to save Pops. And it turns out that uh, Veronica's father is actually the one who brokered the deal and and, uh, uh, owns the coffee place that's coming in. And so Veronica opposes her, and it's this sort of classic uh, back and forth between who's going to be the... Um, you know, the most resourceful person. Um, and, you know, Veronica plays a little dirtier than Betty does. So at one point, uh, for instance, um, you know, Betty's trying to get people to buy T-shirts to help save Pops. Um, and uh, nobody's coming because uh, five steps away, there's a snowball stand. And, and she says, well, why are people buying snowballs? It's, you know, November. Nobody wants snowballs right now. Uh, it turns out it's an adult snowball stand by which, uh, I mean, they put alcohol in the snowballs. And so <laughs> everybody is going to that instead. The whole story is narrated by Jughead's dog, Hot Dog. <laughs> and um, I was trying to look for a good example of text to read to you to give you a feel for how Hot Dog talks uh, well, I'll just give you an example. So this is the very first page of the second issue begins with what looks like a scene of carnage and, and uh, fire everywhere. Uh, and it has a Bob Dylan quote. It says, if you don't believe there's a price for this sweet paradise, remind me to show you the scars. Yes. And then down at the very <laughs> bottom, you guys can see this. They can't. But down at the very bottom, there's Hot Dog, and he's pushing the page back, and he says, Whoa, whoa, whoa. Hold on there, gentle readers. That's actually from next issue. We're so far ahead of schedule, we mistakenly ran out, ran a page out of order. We'll fix it in the trade paperback. Um, <laughs> so, like, that's the kind of, like language that he uses but it's you know he just pops up in all sorts of places saying very bizarre things and you have these weird images that come up um the dialogue is great it's very witty lots of back and forth these characters sound like teenagers they kind of have a teenage cadence to them but they also kind of sound a little ahead of their time too and there's some great sort of strange sarcasm that that runs throughout the artwork is also wonderful. If you're a fan of Adam Hughes' work, you'll love this. Adam Hughes, I think, is famous for having this almost Norman Rockwell-like style in which he inserts very kind of strange things <laughs> that Norman Rockwell would never paint. <laughs> but with this sort of uh, realism to it that's that's really quite quite lovely to, to look at. The only downside to this is, as with anything Adam Hughes gets himself involved in, it is incredibly late uh, every time. So there's only two issues out now. The third issue is about to come out. At this point, it should really be eight issues. I mean, he's you know he's just very behind. Uh, so who knows when there'll be a trade of this. But the first two issues are out on the comic stands, ne- stands now, or you can get them on Comixology. The third one, I think, is coming, if not this week, the next week. So, you know, enough to really uh, kind of pique your interest. Go on out there, pick it up. Betty and Veronica by Adam Hughes from Archie Comics. Well, that brings us to our main conversation today on the topic of manga. And joining us to talk about that is Dr. Zachary Giuliano. 
Zachary is an associate editor at The Living Church uh, and editor of the Covenant blog through The Living Church. He's also a contributing blogger at Anglican Communion News Service, and he's, uh, I believe, uh, on his way to ordination in the Church of England. Is that uh, correct, or we still don't know about that? No, that's right. I'll okay. be ordained uh, July 2nd. Okay, assuming that this doesn't ruin your, your chances, um, we're, we're, we're glad that you're here. <laughs> Welcome to the show. Thank you. Uh, glad to be here. I've been listening for a long time. Zach, if you wouldn't mind telling us, or maybe I sh- should I call you Dr. Zach? Since we're all father, first name, you can be doctor. Uh, only if I can call you Father Jam throughout. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, so, uh, Zach, can you tell us a little bit maybe about your history with comics and, and particularly with manga? I mean, I've been reading comics almost as long as I can remember. I had kind of a brief hiatus sort of through college really up until recently um mostly for like financial reasons comics became too expensive and i was like learning greek and things like that and had to focus basically so i kind of dropped comic book reading but yeah i mean i remember having my first comic book collection when i was about four it's sort of been a steady presence um i didn't really get into manga until i was maybe 16 or 17 And it happened after um, the Cartoon Network started carrying anime in its Adult Swim section. I don't know if anybody remembers that segment from from Cartoon Network. So I remember coming across like um, Dragon Ball Z and Cowboy Bebop and just not really having any sense of what these things were. But I was kind of interested in Japanese culture before that point. So it kind of piqued my interest. I got it, you know, got interested in anime and then into uh manga sort of as a matter of course can can you maybe uh, for the listeners or anybody who doesn't know tell us a little bit about what manga is what makes something manga so the word manga um in a lot of ways is is kind of like the word comics or comic books and that manga uh in japanese means something like inconsequential pictures or like you know useless images or something like that but it got applied as a label actually um as early as the 19th century maybe even before that if i remember to certain kinds of artistic drawings that were just like scenes from everyday life that uh, initially were not kind of considered of artistic value views of like peasants doing things or like city life in a different kind of way um but in the late 19th century, it starts getting applied to what we would actually recognize as kind of um, comics like you would see in a newspaper and a magazine, like a little strip or like a single image with, um, you know, some kind of balloon text or initially without balloon text, eventually with balloon text. So since then, it's evolved a lot and it's kind of always evolved um, in dialogue or alongside Western comics. Um, both in their newspaper and magazine forms and in their kind of more, um, I don't know what you'd call it, more sort of booklet forms. I mean, one of the big differences might be that manga generally covers a broader range of topics than we think of comic books as covering, um, though I think that's changing in recent years because the comic book genre itself has evolved a lot and taken on different kinds of storylines, different sorts of uh, narrative and even non-narrative genres and things so i think i think they're always kind of developing back and forth one of the things that i sort of wondered about with this you know is manga just all japanese comics 
or a specific form. And, and the reason I ask is because there is a kind of specific art style that seems to exist in manga to the point that if you show me a page of manga, I don't have to know that it's from Japan to immediately realize that it is manga. Yeah, that's true. And you can kind of learn to draw manga in a certain way. There's a recognized style to it. There's a sense in which this has changed, though. Like, if you look at the history of manga, um, the way it's been drawn is really quite different. So some of the early stuff, you've got examples that look just like traditional kind of Japanese prints. Um, but then you've got other ones that look like, I don't know if you've seen the British punch illustrations from the 19th century. You know, there are clerical caricatures. There are caricatures of various figures. Well, a lot of kind of early manga in the 1860s, I think, was of that character. There was a, a publication called Japan Punch, which was started by a Brit uh, living in Tokyo, I think. Um, so there's kind of an evolving style. When you move into the mid-20th century, it changes again with stuff like um, Astro Boy. And then, you know, again, in the 80s with Akira and a lot of others. I will say, though, that it does feel like from the 70s till now, if you look at them, there is a kind of recognizable, very simplistic sort of style. There are stock ways to portray heroes and villains. There are ways to show emotion, sometimes in modes that we wouldn't expect, I think, in the West. Like, I'm always struck by the way um, humor is sometimes expressed in, like, a, even in a serious situation in a manga. And they'll literally change the entire face of... Uh, of the person who's having a specific emotion. And again, it could be laughter, it could be anger, something like that. There's this kind of comedic element. And I've often wondered if that actually comes from other kinds of um, entertainment genres, I guess you could say even older ones like kabuki theater with changing masks to show emotion in different ways. Father Matt and Father Kyle and I, uh, despite our, our great love for comics, had never really d uh, dived into manga uh, before this, and so we were kind of excited to do it, and 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 Zach um, gave us some recommendations ahead of time of some things to take a look at. So each of us, each of us looked at um, one or two uh, titles, and we'll talk about those in a in a minute or two here. But I just want to start out by asking uh, you guys, what was the experience like going through manga for the first time? I was aware of the genre um, prior to this, even though I hadn't really dug into it too deeply. You know, I've been aware that there was a Spider-Man manga that existed now for like the last 17 years or so. I remember seeing it um, back in or around 2000 in a comic store. And then, of course, there's the 1960s Batman manga series, which has interested me, but for financial reasons, I have yet to purchase it. But I was um, going to ask if you'd read that. Yeah, I flipped through it in the comic book store a couple of times. And I remember that one threw me off because of the fact that you read from back to front. And so initially, you know, flipping through it was a little disorienting until I figured that out. But, you know, I, I'm familiar with the art style. So there wasn't, it didn't throw me off uh, too much in that way. I will say the biggest thing, I read Akira. A large part of the reason why I chose to read Akira when we got that list was that you know, Zaki had made the recommendation that it would be interesting to read that in light of Frank Miller's The Dark Knight. And, uh, of course, that piques my interest very easily. So, so you know, reading through Akira, one of the things that I found a little bit difficult was 
one that I had to learn Japanese right away. Just kidding. <laughs> um, that would have been impressive. <laughs> no, it was. I, I, th- I think the hardest thing about reading manga for me was simply that the way in which they placed the word balloons was not quite the same as the way that American comics do it. So there were panels where I had to stop and think for a moment who's saying this? You know, it would be a splash instead of that with that little hook that connects it down to someone's head, it would sort of be splashed on there and there might be a couple characters on the page. So that that was a little bit different from what I'm used to. But, I mean, the experience otherwise, to me, at least in reading Akira, and of course it's been anglicized and, you know, it was put in the direction of reading front to back because I'm reading a Dark Horse print of it. It was fairly similar to reading an American comic. What, what about the black and white element, if that doesn't disrupt things? That was a little bit different. Yeah, um, you know, that certainly, it, it makes you look harder at the art. That's a, a very good point. It makes you look a little bit harder at the art because there's a lot of detail in manga, at least in Akira. There was a lot of detail in the artwork. Now, I, I found it fascinating that Akira actually began with, at least in this printing, it began with three color pages and then sunk into black and white. And I don't know if there was some sort of statement that was being made. I mean, of course, it's a post-apocalyptic world. You know, the kind of big apocalyptic event happens in color, and then it transitions into the black and white. I don't know whether there was some meaning to that or whether it was just how it is. Well, the black and white thing is from me. I've read a lot of independent comics and stuff like that, stuff that's published in, in black and white. So that didn't really throw me uh, at all. I, I think the, the the main thing that I thought was really interesting and, and kind of made me very curious in reading a manga is just the cultural differences in, in, in the stories and, and whatnot. I, I checked out, um, and I, I'm probably going to butcher the name of this, uh, Mushishi. It's like a ghost story, like a Japanese uh, ghost story. It it was really beautiful, really well done, kind of very uh, strange and interesting stories. But I had a hard time knowing what the heck they were talking about at the time. There was a lot of uh, there was a lot of uh, you know strange cultural references. I mean, the first it was all about sake, and I didn't know anything about sake. Um, <laughs> And sort of like I got the impression that these ghostly figures kind of came out of Japanese folklore, and mm-hmm. I had no kind of frame of reference for that. So it was a little bit like, wait, are they ghosts? They're like kind of spirits. Like, what's going on here? Reading uh, manga is really like kind of a cross-cultural experience. Um, yeah. I checked out some other kind of anime and stuff like that that I found on netflix uh one of the ones that i was watching that i kind of found pretty interesting was called knights of sidonia it's kind of a a science fiction type series and that really interested me because i'm a big science fiction fan and that was it was pretty close to western kind of stories i mean you know different kinds of characters and things but uh i also uh as as father kyle mentioned I, i had come across the spider-man the manga series of spider-man years ago and i had a few issues of it and so i tracked that down 
it was interesting to see an American comic book translated into a Japanese idiom. Peter Parker is Yu Komori. He's a Japanese teenager. And, you know, it has a lot of similarities to the American Spider-Man, but uh, a lot of differences, too, just by culture. And I found that it got a lot darker and a lot grittier than than the American Spider-Man series, especially given the fact that I think this was this series was published in like the early 70s. And you look at what was going on in the American Spider-Man and what was going on in the Japanese Spider-Man. And, and the Japanese Spider-Man was just a lot darker, violent, more adult. I found that was interesting. They already had more of an adult audience for Spider-Man back when he was still like a book for kids and teenagers, basically. It's it's interesting that you when you mention about cultural differences and and translation that is when I'm thinking of my own sort of getting oriented this is the thing that that I found in some ways the most startling. I mean I I did get used to, you know, it took a minute to get used to reading from right to left and from the back to the front, but I did get used to it to the point that, you know, I've been reading manga all week and this morning was the first time I picked up an American comic book. In, uh, in a few days, and I had trouble reading that because my eyes started going in the wrong direction. Uh, but the cultural differences, you know, there's just stuff that's hard to translate. It's one of the reasons why, you know, anime, which is Japanese animation and is, is related to, to manga, I've tried a couple of times in my life to get into anime, and I've just, I've never quite been able to get over the hump of understanding culturally what's going on. I read an article yesterday called Confessions of a Manga Translator, and we'll link to it on the show page, uh, by a guy named Zach Davison, who has done a number of English translations of manga. And he claims uh, that there's a tremendous amount, when you read English, of the translator uh, working his or her own spin on it, because otherwise stuff translated directly just doesn't make sense. He gives an example. He says, uh, here is an example. The following joke is hilarious in Japanese. A total knee slapper. Husband, let's have ginger pork for dinner. Wife, alas, we have no ginger. <laughs> That's it. That's the whole joke. So, he, you know, I mean, his point being, if if he just translated that directly, you'd be staring at it going, what? <laughs> um so he has to try to, you know, make make it work. And, you know, and it does. Um, I, I do find that reading it in manga works a little better than in the anime, and I don't know what that is. Maybe it's just, you know, I can control the speed with which I look at it um, that has some yeah. effect on it. But uh, there are definitely uh, some things that just, you know, in, just in the way that people interacted with each other, characters interacted with each other, that seemed like it would seem stilted in... Uh, an American context or, or it just wouldn't, it just wouldn't flow, uh, the same way. There's also a number of themes that occur, uh, pretty often. And maybe some of this is just the books that I read. I read, uh, a couple of volumes of Bleach, um, which is about a, these actually, I think both of the ones I looked at had a, had teenager characters, um, so Bleach is about uh, a teenage boy who can see ghosts, basically, and he helps them. Uh, he he ends up in a situation where there's a there's a thing called a soul reaper, 
and she gets kind of stranded without her power and so he starts he becomes a substitute soul reaper and he helps her to to bring souls over and also uh to deal with evil spirits called hollows that sometimes attack um so naturally it's a comedy and uh it actually is i mean you know that's basically yeah. the, the layout of it is a comedy it doesn't sound like it would be but but it is and a uh, very sort of teeny bopper kind of uh kind of book then there's Death Note, uh, which is so dark and so, you know, you just hate read it. You hate read it uh, because the, this is about, I guess this is a, a thing in, in some sort of Japanese mythology, a Shingami, a death god, basically, who keeps track of uh, when people die and who gives them, you know, the date of their death, writes it in this notebook, and he drops his notebook into the human world and this teenager named Light picks the book up, and uh, because he's picked it up, now he can write names in the book. And basically, people die when he writes the name in the book. If he doesn't give a cause of death, they just die of a heart attack. If he writes in a few details, he can actually affect how they die. And so he goes on this, basically, killing spree. He starts killing all of the criminals of the world, and then when people... When the police start coming after him, then he starts killing the police, killing their friends, killing anybody he, you know, who gets in his way. And you, you figure out pretty quickly that this kid is is kind of a psychopath. Although the 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 police officer who's going after him is also not a psychopath necessarily, but is also kind of crazy. Uh, he's sort of a Javert kind of character. But you know, I found myself reading that and just hoping that this kid would just have something terrible happen to him, you know? And that's what kept me going from page to page. Like, please, somebody just, like, smack this this kid or attack him or whatever. You know, an interesting dynamic even there is that you read both of those books. There's an interesting thing about translation and kind of Japanese folklore and ideas and stuff in that. In that you mentioned, you know, in Bleach, they're soul reapers, and in Death Note, it's Shinigami, death gods. But um, this is an issue of translation because in both series, it's about Shinigami. Um, Interesting. It's just the translator of Bleach has chosen to use the term Soul Reaper. And in most translations of uh, Death Note, they use the term Death God. Though you can find other versions that do that. The Shinigami in Bleach are generally speaking benevolent. They're helping souls move over, all this kind of thing. Whereas the Shinigami in Death Note are killing people in order to prolong their own life. Like, that's a that's a key thing uh, in the mythology of it. And it's interesting, yeah, they both focus on a, a, a young male protagonist of basically the same age, but with very different motivations, you know, and it's interesting how a kind of initial folkloric or mythological element can get used in a very different way in a Japanese context, and yet still be pretty recognizable to people in different ways. You could pick up different kind of elements of Japanese folklore that get expressed in both. Well, you can see, you know, you can see the influence of, um, of Shinto in, in the Japanese culture. Uh, the, you know, there's, a, there's a, definitely a repeated theme of life and death. And this is something I would have, you know, I remember from looking at anime years ago, too life and death and souls that are caught in between and what does that look like and what does it mean and um, the relationship between ancestors and those who, who continue to live. It's very, it's very present in the Mushishi uh, series as well. 
I don't know what, what are mushi she. What are they? <laughs> Do you know, Doctor Zach? <laughs> well, um, yeah, I'd have to look it up. I mean, I think basically it's a reference to spirits, but it is yeah. different in that um, you have a kind of very rich understanding of different kinds of spirits in different manga, but also in I think different kind of layers of, of Japanese folklore. Again, where you have things that are like demons. You have things that are either, um, you know, like Buddhas or Bodhisattvas, kind of like um, uh, supernatural saints who can help you, that kind of thing. And then you have other categories of like spirits, not quite non-physical beings who may be sort of neutral or they're more like forces of nature and things like that. I, I was trying to think of um, something that would be similar in Western comics, and I kept running into different ideas, but... Um, I think you can think of some examples in Marvel, for instance, where broader characters are neither good nor evil. They're more like forces of nature. And you get this sometimes in the portrayal. Yeah, well, that's exactly what I was thinking of. You know, Galactus is sometimes portrayed as evil. A lot of times it's just like he's just kind of a a thing in the universe which has to devour. Um, And there's sort of, for him, you know, in some takes on him, there is no moral calculus involved. And that's the case sometimes in Mushishi. These uh, spirits end up doing things they either don't mean to do or they get misdirected or used by human beings in ways they're not supposed to. So it kind of creates a broad view of a universe that's populated by all sorts of things we can and can't see or can and can't experience, which is a sort of transcendent element um, that's present in a lot of manga, I think. I wanted to uh, look into uh, the Neon Genesis uh, evan- Evangelon, I, or I, I want to say Evangelion, <laughs> but um, I thought it was really interesting because you here you see in Japanese uh, culture them playing with Western and Christian concepts, you know, borrowing biblical concepts, you know, or biblical words like Genesis or angels and, and whatnot, and then either misinterpreting them or just, you know, creating a new context for them or, 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 or whatever. I, you know, I find that very interesting. And I, I haven't read this series, but I'd be interested to, to know how that works. I think that series is, again, enormously complex and really interesting. It's so heretical. Like, it's, it's like, <laughs> I mean, like, it's one of those things where it's like if you read... Um, an ancient Gnostic text, you know, from early Christianity, and you're just thinking, wow, this is so interesting and weird and totally horrible. <laughs> you know, it's it's kind of like it has a, a value to it for that. I mean, this is interesting mostly because it is, yeah, a different culture kind of picking up a different mythology and running with it in ways it would be hard to imagine, uh, like, a Western author doing. Yeah, um, yeah. And, and you see that in other kinds of ways as well um one of the things i find most interesting about manga is when you see either westerners or specifically western religion depicted in some way like how are they shown you know occasionally you'll like get a western figure in and it's like they're like way taller than everybody or like you know hugely bulky or something like that like either fat or muscular everybody has like really straight blonde hair and blue eyes and um you know, sometimes really big eyes, that kind of thing. So you, you get that kind of basic level of, um, 
caricature, you know, which is hard not to indulge in because they have to create a distinctive character that's that's not, you know, Japanese looking in some way. But then uh, when it comes to religion, it's really interesting to see what they pick up. Like there's another series I think you guys might find interesting, which is called Blue Exorcist. And, you know, it's about exorcism and demons and things like this. And this this kid basically ends up finding out he's the son of the devil. Right. But he's been raised by Christian priests but their portrayal of priesthood and like a Christian sort of monasticism in a way is really weird. <laughs> like, I mean, so they're like all these priests are like in traditional cassocks that look very normal in one sense and then just have little stylistic elements about them that are totally different. Or they have like these dangly, like kind of goth earrings they're wearing or something like that. <laughs> they can like, they can like fight demons with like, um, you know, they, like, make the sign of the cross and, like, a big, like, beam of energy flies at something, <laughs> you know, or, like, other You can't exorcists. do that, guys? I mean... <laughs> <laughs> That's what I was thinking. Yeah. Happens every Sunday morning. That's, like, the interesting feature in a kind of just weird way. But then the other elements are, you know, then they portray them in ways that just seem not Christian at all in the sense that they all live in, like, what looks just like a Buddhist temple or, like, they're clearly living, like, a kind of... Buddhist monk lifestyle rather than like a kind of Christian monk lifestyle. Um, but Western religion comes in in other ways and all kinds of interesting ways. We do it too, though, because I mean, look at, for instance, the way Eastern religion is portrayed in like something like Dr. Strange. Yeah. You know, I was thinking it, that. Has, it has nothing to do with, with Buddhism. It's just sort of this exotic foreign kind of thing. Yeah, but you know, it's if if you get if you get past, I mean, because we're talking here about the places where manga has uh, tried to portray Western religion or portray Christianity or something. But what I find interesting is more how they portray these ideas of uh, spirituality, of good and evil, and so forth, uh, when they're not trying to say something about Christianity. I mean, in an American context, if you're talking about comics or really any other kind of media, it is almost impossible to to create something that isn't at least in some way, shape, or form commenting on, critiquing, jumping off of Judeo-Christian ideas, even if you're coming from a non-Judeo-Christian background, because there's just enough of that in the water that that's, you know, your starting place is to talk about for instance, to talk about a personal God, whereas, you know, if we're talking about Japanese religion, whether we're talking about Buddhism, Shinto, anything like that, we don't, you don't have a concept of a personal God. You have God-like figures, like, uh, like Zach was talking about, um, that, uh, that are sort of neutral in their makeup, but you don't have, you don't have the same idea of a personal God or a loving, you know, um, a, a single loving creative entity in the same way. But what's fascinating to me is you have definite portrayal here of evil and definite portrayal of good. And evil seems certain. Good seems somewhat uncertain. And yet there is a kind of, you know, we want good to win in the end running through it. It sort of made me wonder about what is inherent in the human experience of spirituality. You know, if you've never been kind of soaked in some sort of Judeo-Christian influenced culture, 
you know, what, what do you end up coming up with? Um, and you do see that kind of, those kind of moral themes playing out. I think Death Note, for instance, would be a very different book if it was written in America. I was thinking about this in two ways. First, I was thinking of something Bishop Robert Barron said on the Word on Fire podcast, where he was talking about some topic, oh, just about uh, the phenomenon of religion. And he said that the, the general common experience of humanity would lead us to believe that there is some kind of transcendent element to things. And he uses that as a baseline when he's talking to people about atheism that there just seems to be some kind of common understanding of a god or gods, um, the experiences of prayer and other spiritual practices, um, even specific things like an underworld or the need to oppose evil or the possibility of punishment or reward in the afterlife. All these kinds of things just run through the world's cultures uh, with very, very few exceptions. And he points to that as a kind of common experience. So I've been thinking again about manga and how that's definitely an element present in a lot of manga. But then I was also thinking, yeah, about like what's going on in a book like Death Note and how there seems to be a lot of supernatural evil present, but very little supernatural good of any kind that you can identify. And then also there's a kind of moral vacuum in that, and you see this in other manga as well, where it's like the decision to fight evil is simply apparent. Like, obviously we have to fight evil, right? And sometimes when you get further into Death Note, there's this kind of argument with the main character about how what he is doing by killing criminals is essentially unjust. But the categories that would like inform that discussion is to how it's unjust, why he should, for instance, defer to a lawful authority rather than taking things into his own hands is really unclear. And I think that's actually what perpetuates the, the interest in the story is that there's a kind of moral gray zone that is very apparent. And, and the response um, readers have made to that manga in particular surprised the creator of it. He said he expected most people to just know that the main character was evil and he shouldn't be followed. And like, obviously, we're all waiting for him to be defeated, right? But so many people were disappointed when the series eventually ends. Um, and I won't get into details about how it ends. But he was surprised at how people sided with the main character and with his vision for ridding the world of people by anonymously murdering all criminals who have, like, repeat offenses and different things like that. And it just sort of showed, I think, you know, if you pay really close attention to that, that actually there is a kind of moral vacuum that some of these things speak into. You know, obviously for some people, it's just, you have to oppose evil and we like get that as an instinct. But then when you really dig into the arguments or a kind of um, supporting framework for it, it seems to be absent. And, and especially without an ultimate source of justice, you know, that is a personal God, especially. Right. It's the need for the forming of the conscience, right? It's the need for the forming of the conscience because you, yeah, I, I, I think there is a, a moral constant that you see across cultures and civilizations. I don't mean that every culture has the same morality, but every culture has a morality. Uh, every culture has some kind of moral instinct, and there's a lot that's shared in common between them. But the conscience has to somehow be formed in order for us to 
actually understand what is morally good versus what is morally evil, because if that isn't the case, then what you end up with, because of our fallen nature, is competing moral claims. And so the person who reads a book like Death Note and says, obviously this guy who is anonymously killing criminals is evil, that person is operating from a moral place. But the person who says, well, actually, it's a good idea if he does this because criminals are bad, is also operating from a moral place. And it may, in fact, be the same moral impulse just channeled in two different directions based on the kind of formation that that an individual person has received. Mm. Yeah, I, I think that that's fascinating. And, and I, sometimes these characters in comic books, uh, they unintentionally uh, end up like forming readers in, in specific ways. An American example would be like someone like the Punisher. You know, the Punisher is created in Marvel Comics as a, as a bad guy. You know, he's he's the foil for Spider-Man. He's the foil for Daredevil. He's, you know, he's a killer. But um, it's interesting to see how he was, like, embraced as, like, a hero. And, you know, even when you see the recent, you know, Netflix programs and stuff like that, people really are like, no, no, I, I think the Punisher's right. And Daredevil's off base here, you know, and challenging him. You know, I, I think that's that's sort of telling about sort of the moral confusion in our in our society yeah yeah and you know to take sort of a um uh, to kind of use a lutheran category in this whole what what, you a lutheran category (laughs) (laughs) um you know we look at we look at this sense that we recognize that evil is wrong and evil needs to be dealt with right now from a superhero perspective it all turns into vigilante justice it's i take the law into my own hands and I become the one to deal out punishment. But, you know, Luther made the distinction between the two kingdoms, that there's the kingdom of God, and then there's the kingdom of this world, and it sort of came out of out of Augustine's theology a little bit. But, you know, the idea is that the, the state has been given, or government has been given the authority to deal with the issue of crime and not the individual, and hence we get to our Lord's commandments within the beatitudes uh, about not responding in like you have heard that it was said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth but i say to you love your enemies and do good to them which is is as i understand it an attack on the idea of vigilante justice that we should take those matters into our own hands so it, you are right father jonathan i think in saying that the conscience needs to be formed and it can only be formed in light of what Christ has done for us, right? Well, it can be formed in any number of ways, but that that's sure. the way I that mean, it gets formed, right, formed in a healthy way. Yes. And it's important, I think, to remember that, too, when we get into conversations about various moral and ethical questions, because the thing that we usually do when we care very deeply about something is we assume that uh, the difference between my side of an argument and your side of an argument is that I am acting with morality and you have no care for morality whatsoever. (laughs) And that's that's not true. Now, it may very well be that my morality or your morality is better formed to what is truly good. But it is not that one of us is acting from a place of morality and the other one just doesn't think morality matters. (laughs) 
you well, know? Well, so this is this is an, uh, uh, an excellent example. So, you know, uh, Father Kyle brings up, you know, drawing on our sort of Western uh, Christian cultural attitudes, you know, and, and, and talking about Augustine, talking about Luther, and whether people know those, you know, uh, thinkers or not, you know, we kind of live in a culture that's just shaped by them, right? But when you enter into a, a, another culture, like in reading Japanese manga, you know, you're in a different sort of moral universe. I mean, there are certain universal things that are that are common across cultures, but, you know, they've been shaped by a different cultural conversation on these, uh, you know, moral uh, questions than we have. And so, you know, it makes sort of uh, connecting with it very, very different. You know, manga is such a big topic. We could obviously, we could do a whole show on any one of these series, but uh, we just don't have that kind of time today. Uh, any any last minute uh, thought or comment before we um, before we leave off of here, Zach, or anybody else really? But yeah. I mean, one of the things that I think about a lot is how um, the visual genre is different in Japan, and acceptance of manga as a kind of acceptable art form to be consumed by adults is different, and I think that's changing in the West, especially with the success of comic book influenced uh, media of different kinds especially movies you know of course all the especially all the marvel universe stuff lately um and the um you know video games play into this as well other kinds of media but you know what's interesting about manga is it just seems like it would be normal for like a 35 year old man in japan to still be reading manga or even older and they have specific age related genres even um, you know, connected to different stages of life. But even then, it's it's considered um, maybe a little out of the ordinary, but still normal for an older man to be reading, um, you know, like shonen manga, which is like uh, aimed at younger people, like uh, young men specifically. So Bleach is an example of that. Death Note's kind of an example of that, that kind of thing. That's something I find really interesting because I've often found comic books and manga very useful as a kind of leisure activity. And you guys have talked about this kind of thing before on the show. We're like, I often engage with comic books as a way to relax because a lot of my work involves a lot of reading, a lot of editing, like a lot of kind of like mental thinking about stuff in very hard ways, but just like gazing at text, text, text. So even though I love reading, often in my leisure time, I want something more image-driven. And comic books and manga really help in that way, and they kind of allow me to think more about questions of aesthetics and beauty and, and just experience the world in a different sort of way um, while still reading in one sense or still being exposed to print. And, you know, I sometimes wish we had something that was um, more like that or we had a more positive visual culture in that sense that wasn't just going to museums, that isn't just like looking at art in a specific way or, you know, stuff like that. Something that's a, a kind of handheld visual medium, which is beautifully produced, well thought out, all that kind of thing, but still has a kind of narrative arc to it, that kind of thing. Well, thank you. Uh, and thank you for being our coach, I suppose, through our, our initiation into manga. This has been very interesting. And hopefully, you know, we can have more conversations about this as, as time goes on, because it is such a large and sprawling topic. But for now, I would invite those who are listening to get in touch with us 
through a visual medium of your choice uh, known as social media. Uh, social media where you can be depicted any way you want to be. So go go ahead. Uh, Facebook.com slash God and Comics is where you can find us, or we're on Twitter at God and Comics. We'd be happy to hear what you think. We'd love to hear your manga recommendations. Uh, so uh, please hit us up there. But for now, we're going to move on to our final segment, This or That. This or that. This or that. Come on, everybody. Let's this or that. Huh? All right, uh, Zach, are you going to be able to stick around for this or that? Yeah, I'd love to. Wonderful. I'll fulfill okay. one of my dreams. One of your one of your <laughs> dreams. Well, you know, uh, this probably ranks right up there with getting your doctorate and the day you'll be ordained. Uh, the day you're <laughs> I was initiated. Included in a this or that segment. That's right. Yeah. Um, so, uh, Father Matt, I believe you have the uh, have the calm, sir. So take it away. All right, I'll start with you, Father Jonathan. And this is continuing our, our, our kind of theme of Japanese culture. Ultraman or Godzilla? I'm not familiar with Ultraman. Oh, man, you need to be. And uh, I'm not particularly fond of Godzilla either. So uh, I'm going to say uh, King Kong. I'm going to go with King Kong. <laughs> Topical. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Okay, um, this one will be for for you, uh, Father Kyle. Black Sabbath or Jars of Clay? <laughs> it is funny because I actually do like both of them. I, I, will, uh, uh, I have not listened to Jars of Clay for probably a decade, so I'm not familiar with they're more modern stuff, but um, I'm going to easily say in this category, Black Sabbath. Oh, oh. <laughs> no, you're choosing Satan over the Lord. Okay. No, no, no it's interesting because you listen, um, you know, in a recent interview, they talked to Tony Iommi about, about this stuff. And um, he said, you know, we've never been Satanists. In fact, in many cases, we've been pro-Christian. And you listen to some of their songs on uh, Masters of Reality their third album and uh you can see it which yeah, do you yeah. think would be would be better black sabbath covering jars of clay or jars of clay covering black sabbath <laughs> uh, i need to ask on black sabbath which jars of clay? <laughs> can you imagine ozzy osbourne <laughs> singing flood that would be great <laughs> it needs to happen <laughs> i'll give this one to um to, to zach since uh the name actually came up. Bishop Robert Barron or Timothy Keller? Oh, oh Bishop Robert Barron. I don't know. <laughs> if anybody who knows Bishop Barron is listening right now, we would love to have him on the show. <laughs> that would be <laughs> We will talk about literally anything with him. So <laughs> This one is for you, Father Jonathan. Giant robots or little green men? That is, uh, that's a difficult one because there are great stories about both giant robots and little green men. I think I'm going to go with giant robots. Maybe rock'em, sock'em, you know, robots, something like that. Okay. Very manga appropriate. <laughs> <laughs> and um, this one will be for uh, Father Kyle. Astro Boy or Speed Racer? 
think I'll go with Speed Racer. Go Speed Racer. Go Speed Racer. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, since since you're the doctor here, uh, Zach, I'll give you the highbrow one. Oh, good. Dante or Milton? Oh, no. Um, <laughs> well, I'll have to confess, I've read all of Milton's stuff, but not all of Dante. But at the same time, you know, Milton could not have done what he did without Dante. And Dante's vision is just so incredible. In fact, there was something about Dante I wanted to, um, I wanted to include in the discussion of Death Note. That's right, quick plug. <laughs> There's something in Death Note about this idea that um, the punishment of crime or, or, or criminals even perhaps needs to, um, you know, their punishment needs to suit their crime, which is an idea that sort of floats through the Christian tradition from time to time. And of course, in Dante is really portrayed in some of the most visceral ways in, in the Inferno. So anyway, yeah, so relevant to Death Note and the idea of justice and different things like that. But I'll, I'll have to say Dante, even though I love Milton so much. I'll, I'll give this one to Father Kyle. I don't know if you've seen these films, if, and if you haven't, maybe you could pass it off to one of your uh, teammates. But uh, The Seventh Samurai or The Magnificent Seven? You know, I have not seen either of those films, um, so I'm going to pass it off. Who has? Anyone Anyone have an opinion about this? I've seen the movie Seven. Does that count? <laughs> I don't think so. No. All right. Well, I'm I'm familiar with the Clash song, The Magnificent Seven. So <laughs> for that reason alone, I will pick The Magnificent Seven. Well, see, there you go. There you, you go. go. Right well, I, The Magnificent Seven, I, I believe, is is like an American kind of mm -hmm. version of the Seven Samurai. This one uh, will be for you, uh, Zach. Just sit, okay. You're you're at a, a typical American mall. Do you go for Auntie Anne's pretzels or Cinnabon? Oh, uh, Cinnabon. I mean, Auntie Anne's pretzels are just, I mean, I love pretzels, and there could be a right mood for that, but oh, no. I mean, they're, they're just not the best. I make pretzels, like big homemade pretzels from a, a, a good recipe, and Auntie Anne's just doesn't match up. Cinnabon, on the other hand, not only gets a shout-out for being delicious, and horrible for you, but also for being the scene at the beginning of Better Call Saul, um, okay. which is just an incredible uh, series off of uh, Breaking Bad. So, Cinnabon. Well, you know, I've been to the original Auntie Anne's, and it's, it's, it was much better when you go to up in, up in Amish country in Pennsylvania. But I can believe it. Uh, and for the final one... Uh, Father Jonathan, uh, the, uh, our, our friends in the Jewish faith just celebrated Purim. So in light of that, two biblical heroines, Esther or Ruth? Wow, that's a that's a tough one. I was, you know, I was in uh, in a play in college that was about a Purim play uh, by Elie Wiesel called The Trial of God. Uh, in, which, in which I played a drunken, lecherous Russian Orthodox priest. Um, so typecasting, really. Um, but, so I have I have a kind of uh, 
weird avenue to my love for uh, <laughs> for Purim and for the Book of Esther. But, uh, I, you know, I, I think I'm going to have to go with Ruth because uh, she is uh, kind of a badass, I think. So <laughs> I'm going to go with her. All right. Thank you, Zach, for coming on the program. We really appreciate it. Did you you want to plug anything before you uh, before you go? Oh, uh, yeah, like, I probably let's say a certain so. magazine or maybe a certain yeah. blog of a certain magazine. <laughs> yeah, so Father Jonathan said at the beginning, uh, I'm associate editor at the Living Church, which is a, a bi-weekly magazine of news, reviews, and cultural commentary and theology in the context of the Anglican Communion, especially the Episcopal Church. So I would recommend all of you to go out and check it out at livingchurch.org. Or indeed, get a subscription. It's only $20 for a full year. And then also uh, our blog, Covenant, which has a daily post on theology, um, specifically stuff on liturgy, pop culture, or uh, actually this week, a lot of stuff on politics because, well, it's a silly season politically. So, um, yeah, I'd really recommend uh, listeners check out our blog, covenant.livingchurch.org, and then the magazine, livingchurch.org. Uh, where I think you'll find high-quality writing and a sort of winsome, uh, generous orthodoxy, as well as award-winning reporting. All right. Well, thank you for that, and uh, thank you for being here for our, our Manga Madness episode. This is It's March Madness, right? So we can have Manga Madness <laughs> manga uh, on God and <laughs> Comics. Yeah. That's Next gonna... year, there will be a whole new feature. Oh, yes, yes, with brackets and everything, yes. Um, <laughs> I was delighted. Thanks. Well, somehow Scott Gunn and, and Tim uh, Shank will have to get involved with that. Um, we'll see. You can find out more about the various rad things that we talked about today on our show page at godandcomics.com, and you can listen to the show again there, download it, do all sorts of things there, and I hope that you will. You can also subscribe to God and Comics through iTunes. And while you are on iTunes, if you wouldn't mind giving the show a rating and a review, we would be most grateful. It helps other people uh, to find the program. And, uh, you know, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll give you some sort of indulgence for it. I don't know, you know, uh, exactly how that works, but we'll, we'll figure it out. We'll call Bishop Barron and we'll find out the answer to that. <laughs> and then I'll, not, I'll nail 95 and then, pieces. And then, and then Father Kyle will nail 95 pieces on your door. Um, our theme music, which you are hopefully banging your head to right this minute, is by Father Paul Wheatley, whose sermons never make any sense because he writes them from right to left instead of from left to right. But I'll tell you, if you listen to them backwards, lots of hidden messages. <laughs> Until next time, I'm Father Jonathan Michikin. I'm Father Kyle Pamela. I'm Father Matt Strummer. And we'll see you. <laughs> <laughs>